Koa did my makeup. He did a great job. You've been letting him do that lately, huh? I think he likes... Is it because he says you're bootyful? Oh, give, me, give me any man giving me praise, even if it's a four-year-old who has kind of questionable taste in makeup. I'll be honest with you, with you. Matt came and I was like in the middle of it. And I was like, how's it looking, Matt? And Matt's like, mm, after looking at my face with allergies all day, it certainly looks like you have allergies. <laughs> Wait, I want to tell you something funny. Oh, okay. So on Twitter, there was this guy, Josh Swain. Maybe you saw because it kind of went viral. Did you see it? Fat laughs. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Um, He, like, posted on Twitter. First, he, like, started a social media conversation. I don't know what, what platform. With a bunch of other Josh Swains. And he said to them, you're probably wondering why I've gathered you all here today. And one of them wrote, because we all have the same name. And he was basically like, exactly. We're going to have to all meet up on such and such a date in such and such a place. And we're going to fight. And only one. And he was like, there can be only one Josh Swain. (laughs) Um, Was it all spelled the same way? Or was it like S-W-A-I-N, S-W-A-N-E? Like, so I believe it originated as it was all the same name, like Josh S-W-A-I-N. It turned into Battle of the Josh. And they kind of extended it to all Josh's. And sure enough... Did your future brother-in-law get involved? No. Oh, my God, I wish. I wish he did. What happened is it was shared on social media, like, 90,000 times. Like, a lot of people saw it. That's why I was wondering if you saw it. And then they came up with, like, here's the date and time we're going to do this. And the original Josh started a fundraising page, and it was titled, Support Legal Fees to Help Josh Swains Change Their Names. (laughs) But really, if you gave any money to it, it went to a children's hospital. That's amazing. And eventually, that became more evident. He slowly kind of made the page a little more obvious so that if you wanted to give, you knew that it was going to the children's hospital. Um, But it was like this past Saturday was the date. Did they meet? They met in Lincoln, Nebraska at a park. And a thousand Joshes showed up. No way. And the first, and there were only, I think, two Josh Swains that showed up. And the original showed up. And then another guy. And the first thing that happened is they did a rock, paper, scissors. And they tied each other the first three times. And then the original Josh Swain won the fourth, the tiebreaker. And being that he was like now awarded the Josh Swain Josh his Swain. first like order of businesses he pardoned that Josh and allowed him to keep his name <laughs> um it's incredible all the other Joshes then engaged in an epic battle with pool noodles just was anyone injured each other with pool noodles no one was injured and I believe the rule was no something groin, no like face. you got touched by a noodle you were out and you weren't like at the same time retaliating with your noodle, you were out. And the last Josh standing was a four year old. No. And he was crowned King Josh, King Josh of the Joshes. <laughs> um, 
he <laughs> is one Josh to rule them all. And it was really nice because they interviewed one of the you know news outlets there interviewed the original Josh and he said I'm a Josh I used to think to myself after this no 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 I am a Josh I'm not just Josh we're all proud to be this moniker and proud to represent it now it means something <laughs> this is where the internet should exist. It's this reason and this alone. What I also was thinking about was like, were people upset that they gave money and it went to a children's hospital? And then I thought, no, a children's hospital is probably the most, the least offensive donation anyone makes. Yeah. And for little. Like I was thinking about just generally of like, where is it? Non political. Non political. Are you just like, everyone, everyone wants to help sick children. Well, I think this podcast has maybe proven otherwise <laughs> yes, over the years. Absolutely. Y'all, Quinn and I put on a face of makeup. And more importantly, we are having a cocky tail. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I know don't if like we want to call it that. We're having a drink. We're having a drink inside a cup. cup. And we're it's having a, really... a tumbler. We're having a tumbler full of vodka. Okay, relax. Most importantly is there is currently Quinn and I are sipping on gin and juice, laid back with our mind on our money and our money on our mind. And more importantly, holding a sick ass fucking tumbler that was made for us. Heather made us these tumblers, Heather, you guys. I'm They're dying. They're so good. They're Mine so says Quinn. What does yours say? Mine says Carrie. That seems on the nose. What if it was like Carrie? My favorite. <laughs> oh my God. But I it's okay. It. So these are available on Belladia Creations. Um, they're so fun. It's a tumbler. It's hefty. It's hard. We love it. But if the- you guys head to our website and click learn, it's going to link right up with this Etsy shop this week. Um, and we also uh, are going to post on the socials. Uh, but on it, it has disperse. It has, I've said it once. I'll say it. I've said it before. Dear readers. Trust has, your blank. Yeah. It has a it has a raccoon that says it has I've had enough. I don't remember saying that <laughs> we've said. The best is on the bottom. Do you see? The There's blue a blue coat. coat. Be okay. careful. It also says all casual ball play leads to casual ball play. Which... I don't remember saying that. Do you who think said who it? said it? <gasps> this is the first merch that's ever been made in our honor, and we are honored. Honored. <laughs> honored you might even say. We're Ooh, Shakespearean Shakespeare, over the top style. Iambic honored. Honored. And it's a beloved. By us. Tumbler. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I've been reading some crazy stuff in the on the interwebs. I read another thing that I think you'll love that I'm going to share with you. Less bright, but certainly interesting. This guy in Japan, I don't know how they're going to prosecute this, but I really think it reminded me of Brianna Posner, and so I'll share it, which is this guy in Japan is like a serial dater. He only goes on like a few dates with women, but he gets them to really like him, and he messages them a lot. So that they feel really invested in the relationship. And he lies to each woman about when his birthday is. And he's been collecting lots of birthday presents on different days from different women. And now they want to prosecute him. And I'm like, for what? Lying about his birthday? You can't. How can you prosecute? I think my favorite is there's a guy that went out that's related to this. There's a guy that went out and had a calendar, a Google spreadsheet and functioned what gave free shit on birthdays and he went and he signed up 
So every day of the year, it's his birthday at some place of business that allow for a free dessert, a free something, a free shake, whatever it is. Oh, sure. I remember finding out that sometimes you got free things on your birthday when I was in high school. And we would go to the mall, we'd go to the Chevys, and we'd say it was our birthday, and you got a free sombrero and a free panic, not a flan, flan and a free flan. And, you know, I could really take or leave a sombrero, but, but the flan. We thank love you a very much. Dish, caramel dessert. And I, a song to go with your flan. Oh, the song A little bit of extra fun. attention from the staff. What yes, he, please. What he did was he went to, like, Carvel's or, like, he went to, like, Baskin Robbins. He went to play or Cold Stone Creamery. And it was, like, so oh, every... Cold Stone gives a free. Totally. Every day he went and he got something free like if he wanted to on any given day he could get a free item because his birthday was listed at one place or another dear readers hot tip is it your birthday today yes go to cold stone let me answer that for you it is it is if you want it to be if you try hard enough it is if you go to cold stone and you fucking lie Ooh, i'll tell you guys what carrie and i are drinking out of our tumblers Mm -hmm. we're having a quarantine latte so instead of the milk we put in ice, and instead of the coffee, we put vodka. <laughs> Quinn made a cocktail out of a vodka called Quarantine. Quarantine vodka, small batch vodka. Um, Are we ruining it in a mixed drink, though, is the question. Should we be drinking it? I can't it? do a shot. I'm What about, old. like, a vodka martini? Oh, I don't think I can do a tumbler full of vodka martini either. No, no, no. I really no. wanted to use the tumbler, so we're having vodka soda. I love how we couldn't even just say, let's put water in the tumbler. It was like, no, no, no. You have to put... I think tumblers are notoriously for vodka. Have I talked to you about my father-in-law? You've not talked to me explicitly about him. I mean, Bronwyn I feels him. like she gets top billing a lot of times because I love both of them. Yeah. So they're both great. My dear readers... Quinn's married. I... <laughs> By the um, way, you're listening to Truly, Darkly, Creepily. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Smith-Ibama. And this is a show about, about us. us. <laughs> <laughs> so my father-in-law, Craig, Matt's dad, is mm-hmm. a true gem. And I, first of all, I'm, I am so lucky in a variety pack of ways. One of the ways I'm very lucky is that I have really, really good in-laws. Like, they're delightful and we go stay with them for weeks at a time and I don't have like a feeling of like I need to get out of here at any point really yeah like they're really sweet to be around and easy to be around the ease is the big like I feel like if I need to go do a thing if I need to go on a walk or a run or like go take my time if I um whatever need to sit and just read they don't put any pressure whatever on either of us to be present in a certain way they're really happy to see our kids they're really good grandparents i mean i sh- i say that they haven't met griff yet we're actually flying out there uh soon now that everybody's vaccinated and they're gonna get to meet him and i'm so excited i'm so excited but i also just think that is like how I would love for my house, and I think you have that vibe too, where it's like people come as you are. You're not expected to show up. You're not expected to do anything. Like, that's the best gift you can give someone is like truly welcoming them into your home. Like, I feel at home in their kitchen. They don't make a thing of meals where like, if we're all together, fine. If we're not, fine. And if we are all together, it's like this really chill thing of like, 
oh, do you guys just want to order in? Do you want to, like, make these frozen pizzas? It's just everything has a laid-back quality Mm. that makes it feel really easy to be there. And I don't ever feel stressed while we're there. Um, Except that they don't have a dryer. That's probably the only thing that's a little stressful. Mm. So they do a thing where they, like, hang Hang up all the clothes. California sun. It's beautiful down there. Well, so with your kids uh, of the shit-their-pants age... Um, we're like, you know, Griff's still going up the back a lot. It's like, you just have to be careful because totally you can't have everything on the dry rack. Right. Um, yeah. And they live in Santa Cruz, which is also a fucking delightful place to be. Hippie um, Michigas. And it's got like painted cute houses everywhere. It is. I went there. I walked around with you. It's great, right? And they have the seals. Oh, yeah. yeah when I went day. to the haunted ride on the boardwalk. Yes. That was a great day. That was a lovely day. And then we walked back. I wish back. you would come again. I should come back again. I got to go for work. So like you were there and I just that got to ideal. be there. And I was unhappy and I borrowed someone's car to come down. Mm-hmm. That was fun. That was really fun. We're going to go on vacation though this fall. It's also it's so fun to see friends in unexpected oh, places. It's like truly the best. When I was on tour, it was like the coolest thing where every now and then I'd like see a familiar face, which is why when I toured the UK... I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. It felt really more isolating. Whereas like when you're touring in the U S chances are like I've made enough friends or my parents know enough people where like every couple of States, there'd be a familiar place I could go out for a drink with and like get out of my little bubble. Mm-hmm. That's the best. Well, so all this is to say that, um, Matt's parents are great. Matt's dad, his vibe is whenever I wake up in the morning, he makes me coffee and he does those ones that's like the individual the drip coffee yes he makes me a coffee and then at, i'm not kidding i think probably four or four thirty he walks into whatever room i'm maybe like doing work in and he goes want some hooch and he brings me a glass of wine this is what's not to love first of all also he speaks in a lot of old-timey terms, like a him. little tongue-in-cheek, a little to be funny, and it is funny, and it's very cute. And he would say right now, like how we're drinking, he would say, we're in our cups. And he splices that old-timey talk with sometimes, if he's surprised, saying, well, I'll be a motherfucking son of a bitch. And it cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, so he's great. He's sent me, sometimes he sends me articles he thinks I would be interested in. And usually they're of some kind of creepy or true crime nature. I wonder why he thinks you're into it. He knows that that's my bag and he sends me cool stuff. He sent me an article this past week that got me going down a rabbit hole. (gasps) And it's what led to what I'm going to do my story on. I'm excited. Okay. Oh, thanks, Craig. Also, I'm going to see my family next week. We're all vaccinated and it's very exciting. And I do know I have to get my liver ready because my parents, like, like I don't drink by myself, but when I'm with my parents, it's like, yeah, let's crap go up. Like, sure, here's some rosé, here's some wine, here's oh some... Oh, like, I like, thought you were going to say, I don't drink by myself, but when I'm with my parents, I go in the closet and drink by myself. <laughs> I actually really like my parents. I'm so excited to see them and my nephews and my siblings. Really fucking excited. But I'm going to be, like, my liver, I can only stand to be with them for a month because, like, ugh, I'm going to be... Drunk for a straight. You're going to be sourced. Eh. So I got my information from Craig. Um, I think the article he sent me was an article from The Guardian by Siren Kale. But I also got stuff from CNN Reader's Digest as well. 
Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest. A great interview in Reader's Digest is part of what I'm going to read to you. love that. Yeah, it was terrific. So, uh, I don't know if I should tell you. Don't. Yeah, don't, right? Don't. If there's a question, don't. Okay. All right. So, for months, the 17-year-old Armando Sacaras Ramirez and his friend who's 16, Jorge Perez Blanco, are trying to get out of Cuba. They want to leave Cuba forever. Armando has five siblings. His dad's a plumber. They're very poor where they like are a family of whatever, six, seven, eight. They all live in one room. Wow. Yeah. So when he turned 16, he had been really excited to go to vocational school and he was going to learn welding. But really, he doesn't get to go to a ton of class. Like where he goes to school it's by these sugarcane fields, and they're mostly like, we actually just need you to go to the fields and harvest. So oh. it's, yeah. He just wants to really, he wants to escape. He wants to go to the U.S. He has an uncle there, and what he really wants is to become an artist, and he has these ideas about what his life would be like there, and his friend's the same. So they're like, let's do this. The big day they're going to take action is June 3rd, 1969. What their plan is, is to stow away in the wheel well of a plane. It's Iberia's weekly nonstop run from Havana to Madrid. So what you should know about this flight in general is that there's like 800,000 people on a wait list just to get on that flight. It's real popular, but also if you're like signed up to be on that wait list and outwardly saying you want to be on that flight, then the government in Cuba is kind of looking at you poorly and maybe going to try to make your life a little more difficult if they can before you board that plane. So being on the wait list sucks. And I don't think they could get on it anyway as kids. I don't think they have the money or the resources or the, the connection. Right. So they bring a rope to secure themselves once they climb inside and they wear rubber soled shoes because they're like, this will make it easier to climb up the side of the airplane. And, oh, we'll bring some cotton to stuff in our ears because it's probably really loud next to the engines. And so, oh my God, this is so scary. They get to the airport and they make it like they sneak in successfully outside of the airport of course and they're hiding in the grass near the end of the runway planes that are leaving on this flight what they do is they taxi to the end of this runway and they stop momentarily before they turn around and then they do the full fucking speed to take off so there's this moment where the plane sort of stops and that's what they're waiting for (gasps) so they're hiding in the grass they're like rush of wind already is happening and the plane gets to the end and slowly starts to stop and Armando turns to Jorge and yells let's run and Perez is like having second thoughts and Ramirez like drags him and they start running and they get to the wheels of the plane which are obviously enormous and Armando realizes as they look up into the wheel well oh, we're not both going to fit in there. It's, like, much smaller than he pictured. Mm -hmm. So he's like, 
runs, he instantly like leaves his friend at that wheel well and, and runs to the, to other, the other side of the plane. Which I think would just be so scary because in your mind you're, you're like, we're going to be, be together. together. And it's then con- suddenly in that second, the plan changes and you still have to just go with it and oh you have to God. still like full speed ahead. So he runs to the other side of the plane and shimmies up the wheel and like pulls himself into the right wheel well and it's super dark. He gets in there, the plane starts moving and he's like grabbing at machinery to kind of stay anchored in there. Oh it's my God. loud. Way louder than he thought it was going to be. And it's powerful. And he's this teenager just, like, holding on for dear fucking life. The plane takes off. Fuck. This Imagine. is so insane. As it takes off, the compartment he's crawled in starts to open up to let the wheel come inside. And Armando, like, the rush of it is, like, going to suck him out. So he's hanging on with fingertips to the edge of the compartment, being blown like sideways inside it from the power of this wind. His middle finger turns black from exertion and like frostbite. The wheels start to fold in and he pushes his body back as like far as he can as the wheels coming in. And he cannot believe it because the wheel just keeps getting closer, closer, closer. He's like, there's nowhere for me to go. This is going to crush me to death. And suddenly he puts his legs out to try to block it and he pushes back, which is crazy because he's like 140 pounds. Like, dude, you are not going to win an arm wrestling match against an airplane. You're going to lose that. Suddenly, though, the wheels sort of lock and the doors shut and he's in total darkness. Can't see a thing, but he has not been crushed to death. Oh, my God. But, like, he packed this rope. I don't know what he was thinking. He can't move. Like, he can't move at all. He's so pinned that he can't move his body. Suddenly, the pilot, Captain Velaton Vara del Rey, who's done this flight before today. And the flight is going as it always does, except that right after he took off, he got a little light that came on, telling him the landing gear didn't retract properly. Gee, I wonder why. He's like, oh, that's weird. Ah, I'll just do what everyone does when shit goes wrong and (laughs) unplug and replug, right? Like restart the situation. So he basically hits like whatever. I picture a button that just says redo. I know a lot about flying. And the wheels start to no go back out. fucking way. Yes. This is insane. So the, the, do- the like bay doors that keep the wheel in are obviously all that's keeping Armando safe. And they start to open again. And he's like, what the fuck am I going to fly out of this plane? He holds on as tight as he can. But luckily, before he knows it, the wheels start to go back in again. Like they just start to come back in and he now has a moment he's gotten the lay of the land to figure out a better place to park his body where he has like a hair more room and the wheels come back in as they're coming back in he now has like control of his arms he plugs some aspirin he brought and he settles in because the flight is going to be eight hours and 20 minutes 
it's cold as that's what my concern was it's negative 41 yeah and it's so loud armando says you became part of the noise it made me shake i put some cotton wool in my ears but it didn't work when you become the noise it is beyond comprehension so an hour into the flight they are fucking a million miles over the atlantic oh my god he's cold he's dizzy and he passes out seven hours later captain barra del rey he starts to descend into madrid's airport he tells the passengers on the little you know airplane and they can hear the airplane talk like we're landing Does no he- no no he can't hear it at all and he's passed the fuck out he says oh the weather in madrid is sunny and pleasant and then he starts to let down the landing gear so when this happens, a 200 mile per hour turbulence is going to shoot into those wheel wells. The oh captain lands the plane, no. walks off the ramp, goes kind of toward the front of the plane. He's going to wait for a car's going to come pick him up there. And he hears a weird thud behind him and turns to see. A frozen body of a teenager, Armando, fall out of the airplane and onto the ground. A security guard runs over and touches him. And he's completely stiff. His clothes are stiff. Like solid. His mouth and nose have an ice coating over them. And he's basically like a grayish color. So they're like, this guy's dead. But then he lets out a moan. They're like, holy shit. And they call emergency services. They come pick him up. And the captain just keeps repeating over and over again. Impossible. Impossible. He cannot believe what he's seeing. The staff carry him into the airport. They lay him on the ground. And they're like, he's got to be dead. But then he totally comes to again. And he can see people moving around. But he's totally out of it. Like The the room is basically spinning. He's so dizzy. And they're like, we have to get this kid to a hospital. Which is where he wakes up. He wakes up in downtown Madrid. In the hospital. Can I ask, did his other friend end up not getting in? I'll tell you. But he, I'll tell you what happened. Mm. His other friend didn't make it to Madrid. What they think happened is that he fell out at the very beginning of the flight. He's they they believe he's a lot. No, 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 not even that. Like at the beginning, beginning, like didn't make it in, or fell out right away. Like lived and got arrested by Cuba's authorities. Yeah. So we so don't like know never made it off the ground. We don't know what happened to him. No, we don't know his story. He's still in Cuba, to our knowledge. Oh, God. This yeah. is horrifying. Okay. So Armando's at the hospital. He's alive. They take his temperature, and it's so low it doesn't register on the thermometer. Like, they're oh like, Oh, my God. We don't, they like, he like cryogenically froze himself. People are not. This. That's exactly right, Carrie. That's exactly what Thank he did. You, Quinn. You're Thank a genius. You. I am. Thank you. Um, so it's, it, it basically reminds them of like, when they put a patient into a deep freeze for a surgery or something right. that they want to do that's dangerous. Like a heart transplant. They put you on ice. Yes. To... So when he gets conscious enough to talk, he's like, where's Jorge? 
That's like the first thing he says. Oh. And he spends 52 days recovering in that hospital. And after a month, his hearing returns, which he, of course, had lost because that shit is loud. Um, oh. And as I said, they think Jorge was found on the runway in Havana and arrested. His uncle lives in New Jersey, calls him, and he does get to go live with him. Mm. And the International Rescue Committee arranges arranges passage for him. He's and like, this plane is actually great when you're on the inside. This is great. <laughs> well, um, now he gets to live with his uncle. And he gets to go to school and learn English. And um, he says to everybody, I want to be a good citizen and contribute something to this country, for I love it here. You can smell the freedom in the air. Oh. He actually does contribute a lot. He works as a firefighter for 11 years. And now he's 69 years old and he has four kids and 12 grandkids and lives in Virginia. Oh, I love that. And he thinks that he made it through this experience because of divine intervention. He's very religious. And he says that he thinks God put his hand on him. But he also feels a lot of guilt because not just about Jorge, after doing this, as you can imagine, there have been a lot of copycat incidents on the exact same flight pattern. And oh. he was one of the lucky ones. It's not obviously common at all to survive stowing away on a plane. Um, and when I read about uh, this particular survival story, I was reminded of Yahya Abdi. I don't know if you remember this story. It was pretty recent. Um, so Obviously, Armando's story happened in 69, but in April of 2014, Yaya Abdi was a sophomore in high school. Um, He was from Somalia, but he was living in California, and he wanted to see his mother, who was in a refugee camp in Ethiopia. He last saw her when he was seven, and he was, like, fighting with his stepmom or something, and he wanted to go be with her, and he broke the perimeter somehow at San Jose Airport, and he got on an airplane and all he did he guessed he didn't know where the airplane was even going but he was like that one seems like it's going in the right direction and at 1 a.m he was he got into the airport hid for six hours saw an opportunity to approach a plane climbed in the wheel well and took a five-hour flight to maui and he made it and he's now okay same thing like he recovered his hearing um, and meanwhile, uh, anecdotally, wow. San Jose had to spend $15.4 million upgrading their airport to get 10,000 foot fencing after that happened. Because they were wow. like, we can't have that happening. Wow. I mean, I think what's probably saved, I was thinking about, because I was like, I know how cold it is up there. I don't know. But like, that's why when it's negative, like, whatever. 10 degrees in the Chicago, you can't fly because it's going to be like negative 100 up there. And so probably what saved him is in the Maui, it's like he was going from San Jose to Maui, maybe in the summer. And then this guy was in June 4th from Cuba to, you know, like maybe it was warm. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about it seasonally. Well, um, so let me give you some stats on stowaways, okay? God. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration says that from 1947 to 2020, 128 people attempted to stow away. That's it? That actually More feels... than 75% died. died. It's not 
a good way to travel. No. Most of them are male. In fact, actually, every known stowaway has been male. This is just anecdotally. There was a Cuban woman who shipped herself to the U.S. in a pressurized hold of a cargo plane from the Bahamas in 2014. Mm-hmm. The youngest person that we know about that's tried to do this was nine years old. But most of them are male adults under 30. And Cuba is the most common country of origin for the people doing this. I'm curious, have you guys ever been on a... You guys are talking to you like you're going to answer. Quinn, have you been on a plane and you see, like, coffins come on your plane? No. Really? No, I've never seen that. That's really common. I see it all the time. We're Maybe like, I'm not looking in the right place. So, like, sometimes, like, it's pretty common to travel on a plane with a coffin. And then they're sort of transporting the bodies. Well, so I'm curious why people aren't doing that, but they probably the wouldn't coffin. leave. But like they wouldn't. Cuba would be like, you're dead. You're buried here. They wouldn't like ship you to the U.S. to be. Yeah, it's probably pretty hard. to. It's probably like I'm, I'm seeing it mostly on like, you know, intercontinental. Is that the word? Um, yeah. But like does seem way air. safer than that wheel well. Totally. Ugh. well, so why you're risking so your life sad. in so many ways to do that is that. While the plane is taking off, you fall out. Like, that can happen really frequently. And actually, this is really crazy. A photographer happened to get a picture of that happening in 1970. No. A 14-year-old fell out of a plane that was going Sydney to Tokyo. And a photographer wasn't even trying to take a picture of that, but got a picture. And it had the body falling out of the plane. Now, if you make it through the whole flight, you still might fall out at the end. At the landing. And the reason there's even more of a chance then is you're passed out. Yeah. You you won't be conscious. So once the landing gear comes out, you might fall. And this actually happened to a guy in London who fell from a plane as it was landing and was decapitated on impact by an air conditioning unit at an office building. Oh, my God. How oh crazy God. is that? No, I w- didn't love that. I didn't like that. I'm so that. sorry. No, but I, that didn't like, I don't know why did I didn't happen. like that, but I didn't like it. I know why I, I didn't like it. Yeah, but I have I a few guesses why you didn't like that. I have a few guesses why I didn't like, like, like it. You I can like also it. be crushed by the landing gear like Armando almost was when it retracts in. Uh, that happened to a 23-year-old in July 2011. No. Someone doing that same trip, the Cuba oh, to Madrid. Fuck. Then there's hypothermia. Of course. Then there's like the air pressure itself, which like it's like if you're a scuba diver, you hear about the The bends bends. and stuff. It's sort of uh, bubbles uh, show up in your blood. And there's any number of fucked up things that can happen to you because of that uh, hypoxia, basically, it's called. And the like you said, though, Carrie, the kind of the way that they're cheating death is they're essentially hibernating. Yeah. Yeah. So there was and that's research. if they're lucky enough to be like positioned correctly or just lucky enough where the air pressure comes in and keeps them in while they're my God. I mean it's a real crapshoot. But they did some research on cold water drowning cases that they relate to this. So there's this story that in February of 2011, there were 13 Danish teenagers and a couple of teachers, and they were out on a boat in a really fucking icy, cold-ass fjord, and it uh, capsized. And a teacher and some of the students were able to get ashore and call people to come rescue them. 
And they didn't get there, though, till two hours later. And they pull these kids out of the water who are unconscious. And the water's like negative negative two Celsius. Their hearts had stopped beating. And their body temperature was 18 Celsius. Wow. They were clinically dead. D-E-A-D dead. And they came back to life. They How many? slowly, slowly warmed them up at the wow. hospital with like these oxygen mach- machines where they can do it really slowly and warm your blood. And they do it by actually, it's so weird. They like remove the blood the from blood, your body and warm it up. Ox- yes. Oxygenate it, pump it back in wow. while you're sedated. Wow. And only one of the students they brought back from the dead experienced pretty severe damage both physically and uh cognitively mm-hmm. but the other six had what i guess you would call really moderate and they were in the water damage. for two hours yeah without breath yeah like underwater Dead. i mean i don't know the answer to okay. exactly when they lost consciousness well, you've seen, like it's pretty common in cold water where like that's where like people come back to life in a wild way well, they come back to life let me be clear they all say they're not what they would have been like Mm. In a way where they're like, they're a little, their cognitive abilities are a little stunted. They're a little slower. Like they are living normal lives unassisted, but it feels like there's a potential there that changed, if that makes sense. So none of what I just told you is actually the article that cranks at me. And I'm going to tell you the story that's in that article now. This is like four stories. Quinn. I'm sorry, but no. stowaways. You got really it. fucking really fascinating. fascinating. And, and I... also traumatizing, horrifying. Okay, tell me the story. Okay, I will. So this is super recent. It's a Sunday, a lazy Sunday in June 2019. And we're in England. And Will's this 31-year-old dude. He's having a beer on one of those, you know, those like inflatable airbed things that you like run and catch air or maybe it was a blow up but he's like lying on one of those having a beer gotcha he's in his pajamas he's outside his house he's like relaxing having a sunday he's in southwest london his place is located below the plane path to heathrow okay so he's looking up at the sky like catching the plane screws by and his housemate comes out of the house and he's chatting with him and he's like oh check this out i found this app and it tells me the route and model of any passing plane. So he's looking up at the sky, using this, fiddling with it, and he sees something falling out of the plane. And he's like, what is that? Like a suitcase or like maybe some sort of equipment that's part of the plane? What the fuck is that? And as it gets closer and closer, he's like, I think I see limbs. I think that's a person. So because he has the app, he does know, like, what flight it is and stuff. And he calls the police and he's like, hi, I think I just saw a person fall out of a Kenya Airways flight from Nairobi, which the flight had left like eight hours earlier. He goes out on his motorcycle, basically trying to, like, imagine where... The trajectory of the guy. Exactly. And where he might have seen it fall. And he comes upon this, like backpack on the ground and gets super excited because he's like it was just a backpack but then he realizes there's dust on the backpack and he's like i don't think that's right so he keeps going and then he sees a police car go by so he follows it and he gets to this townhouse 
and sees a young guy standing outside that looks wrecked, like just face as white as a ghost, shaking. Oh my God. And he notices the guy's patio is totally destroyed. No. And he goes up to him and he goes, that was human, wasn't it? And the guy just looks at Will and nods. So it was a half-frozen body falling 3,500 feet. I don't know why, but I still held out hope that he could, that that guy was alive, the stowaway's alive. They look inside the wheel well, and they find a rucksack with the initials MCA on it. Inside the rucksack is, like, bread, a bottle of Fanta, water, sneakers, and a little bit of Kenyan currency. Um, they The pathologists take samples of this man's DNA and the police circulate information about the case uh, through the police gazette. There's a press release. They talk about the initials on the bag MCA. And then this publication Sky News is like, we've identified the stowaway. It's Paul Mignassi. He's 29 and he worked as a cleaner at the airport. And that's how he must have gotten into the airport. And then that guy's girlfriend who she didn't come out with her real name. They called her Irene. Told Sky, like, yes, the initials on the rucksack are for member of county assembly. And that was his nickname. That's not a good nickname. Not a great nickname. His mother also is like, yes, that's my son. I recognize his underwear. That's very weird to me. He's a grown man. That's very weird to me. And it doesn't add up because another person's like, finds out, wait, his mother wasn't speaking to him for years. Why would she be up to date on his underwear? In her defense, all of the things she wrote into it as a child, still there. Well, they dig into this report and it seems like everyone knows something's wrong with it. And they find this guy's father. He says, some white people came to visit my family and gave us $200 and basically convinced us to say it was our son. And I think it's all political about the airport. Like, they don't want you to... Know. If you can breach an airport that way, it's a really big deal. Totally. And it, it's going to cost... The airport that, $15 million. And there to... for the town. It's... So it... Jesus Christ. But it turns out, also, these parents didn't even have a son named Paul Mignassi. Their son was named Isaac and was not dead. He was locked up in a prison in Nairobi. So it's crazy this even happened. But Kenyan officials finish their investigation and decide that no breach was made at the airport. So they're able to retain their category one security status. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. Had there any been any, I'm curious if there's been stowaways that nobody's detective and have gone through. Oh, well, we wouldn't know. But as recently as this year in 2021, a Turkish airlines Airbus landed and they found um, a 16-year-old Kenyan boy in the landing gear unharmed. He was discharged. You're going to die. He was discharged from the hospital after one day. What? And in a statement, he was like, I just walked onto the plane and fell asleep. And I just wanted to leave Kenya for a better life. Wow. But we still don't know the identity of the man that fell in 2019. He's buried in Lambeth Cemetery and no one came to his funeral. Just this, like a oh. journalist was there that wrote this story I read. That's so and sad. And the grave diggers and an official from the Kenyan embassy. 
And they buried him. And on his grave, it just said, unknown male, died 30th June, 2019, age 30. That's really sad. Really sad, right? These are dark. Well, that's... I read that article and was like, that that was a story about someone not surviving. But I, when I, when I read that article, it was making mention of those that do. So I started to read the survivor stories, which of course are absolutely insane. Um, and it's because they can live to tell the tale of what actually is happening to their body. You would experience. Ooh, that makes me so uncomfortable. Thanks for telling that story. Sure. And thanks for sending that article, Craig. Thanks, Craig. Love you. Mine is kind of, mine is definitely connected, um, and you'll you'll see why. Um, it's Wikipedia Mental Floss. Those are where I got this information. I'm doing the story of William Floyd Collins, okay. also known as Floyd Collins. Um, so Floyd is a cave explorer. He started um, at the age of six. He there's um, This is all taking place in the early 20th century, and around that time there was this thing called the Kentucky Cave Wars. So in... Um, in central Kentucky, there are hundreds of miles of interconnected caves. Now it's called the Mammoth Cave National Park. It's the longest cave system in the fucking world. Really? Yeah. In Kentucky, believe it or not. So what was popular at this time was there was this thing called the Kentucky Cave Wars, where cave owners and explorers would go and they would like find cave shit in the hope of making it a tourist trap essentially where people would Mm. go down pay money to go to these caves yeah we just went last year to cave of the winds in colorado it's so cool caves are cool caves are really cool i don't know that i'll go anymore after covering the thai cave rescue story i don't think you'll go after this one either (laughs) it doesn't go well it doesn't go well so Floyd Collins, he starts exploring the caves at six. By 10, he drops out of school. By 12, he starts veering off the beaten path, and he starts finding his own paths in a cave. And he is so fucking skilled at exploring caves. And some of the things you have to do, you won't be able to move your hands, and you just, like, shimmy your whole body through these tiny cracks. Can you believe it? No. No. There's no fucking way. It sounds horribly, horribly scary. When I was reading the article on mental floss, it was really jarring and it was definitely very scary. So at 12, he's finding his own paths. He finds old artifacts. He finds, like, from indigenous populations. He finds bodies of past explorers through these caves. At 14, he's paid $2 a day to guide people around caves. So he's well known in the cave exploration racket. 1917, he stumbles upon this cave called the Crystal Cave. It's on Flint Ridge, which is an isolated cave. And he was like, oh, this has amazing potential to be a tourist, a show cave in Mammoth Cave. But it was really dangerous to get to. You had to take back roads. You had to take like a passage on a wagon. Like, and he apparently was not a very good driver. So his goal was to like work through Crystal Cave and find an entrance that's closer to the beaten path. And like I said, it was the Kentucky Cave War. So I guess people played a little dirty in that people would block traffic to one cave like they were competing against whose money they were going to get and bringing people to the caves so he's hoping to find another cave so he starts exploring through this cave 
and he makes agreements with a bunch of landowners um, that if he finds an entrance, if it's on your property, we'll split the revenue, but there'll be potential. So he's like working through people's properties in these interconnected caves underground. He then finds this place called Sand Cave. Sand Cave turns out to be this like pretty open cave and he sees promise in this cave, Sand Cave. As a place to explore, you As mean? a place to explore and a place to connect to a working road to make this another show cave. He makes an agreement with the Sand Cave owner. So he's looking to find these like little passages to open them up. It's January 30th, 1925. Floyd Collins is 37 years old and he's working in Sand Cave trying to open up those passages. He had been working there for weeks in this specific cave. He was spending about 12 hours a day clearing gravel, the sandstone, the limestone. So like painstaking processes of just like clearing out the rubble to make it so that he could fit through. He squeezes through a bunch of narrow passageways. Like I said, where like a lot of it is he was fearless where he'd go like head first and he'd fucking like shimmy in and find like a big cave. And so he just, they describe it in the article as like he could compress his body by like removing the air so that he was smaller so he could get through. Like that's how tight the spaces were. What? There's a photo of him and it's like he's in a fucking crack. Apparently he could get in where it was like only eight inches of clearance. He could move his body. That's disgusting. That's makes like a rat. Me, like it honestly talking about it makes me sick because it's <laughs> so anxiety inducing. Oh my God. So he finds this huge chamber and it's like, he's like, there's a fucking grotto. Like there's a big fucking place. This is really exciting. So he's like, great, great, great. So his lamp started dying. It was like, okay, I'm going to go back. So the lamp doesn't die. He goes back. He has to go through more narrow passageways. Goes through this tiny thing. His hand is on his side. His arm is above his head and he's doing the like shimmying to get out. The lamp falls. <clears throat> It's pitch black. In fact, it's so black down there that fish don't have eyes because they don't even need them because it's no daylight. He is 55 feet below the surface of the ground in a cave. In a teeny tiny. In a narrow crawlway with no light. Now he's, I know, he's been here before. He's an experienced caver. So he's like, okay, I can do this. So he starts shimmying. And he takes his foot and he pushes off what he thinks is a wall to give him some leverage. His one hand is down. His other hand is above his head in this small crevice. He can't move. He knocks something loose and a 26-pound rock falls on his left leg, pinning him in this crawl space. He's alone. Fuck. Does any... Oh, but people know he's there. People know people he's... People ex- find out he had, like, changed houses, so they finally realize this guy is missing. He's there by himself in the pitch black for 25 hours. So scary. The only thing in there, it's January 3rd, it was unseasonably warm. The only thing that's there is melting icicles that is hitting him in the head for 25 hours. He's getting, like, water tortured. He's totally getting waterboarded. I hate this story. Um, So he's completely trapped. So he starts trying to, like, he couldn't even roll over. He can't move this 26 pound. Because think about it, he's here. Like, he can't have access. He can't move his body to leverage off this rock off his leg. He's also not on a flat surface. 
there's like razor shard sharp cave rock digging into his back and front. Where he is at is 150 feet from the entrance of the cave. He starts clawing the cave walls. His fingernails are bloody. He sweats, he shivers, he sleeps. He sleeps, he wakes up, he screams, he does that for 25 hours. The next day, a friend is like, oh fuck, where is he? He's like, because he's spent time at three different places, they were like, oh, he's missing. So they go into where he was and someone finds him and he's freaked out by how isolated this guy is. And the narrow passageway, it's really hard to describe, but basically it's like you continue through this cave, you have to go through a bunch of narrow places, but where he's at, he's like flat and it's a vertical drop by him. So he like doesn't have any leverage to be pulled to the left or like pulled out and then pulled up. So he's fucking stuck. His friend is like, oh shit, I'll get you crackers and lights. So they start to bring shit in there. And apparently, so rescuers start trying to bring him stuff. People are so afraid to go in there because it's so hard to get through. The The first person that really gets there is his brother, Homer. His brother, it's so sad. His brother keeps like, oh, it's so sad. His brother sees him and like gives him coffee and gives him sausage sandwiches just to like keep him alive so you can reach him like how do they get things to him they can reach him so they have to go down like before it was like it's hard to explain but it's like either you go down head first or feet first Mm -hmm. and you can't contort your body to feed him and he's pinned he can't move his arms right so only skilled explorers can go down there and there's quotes of rescuers who went down there and they would bring quote sandwiches and coffee And they didn't tell anybody, but they just ditched him halfway because they got scared and they came back. Floyd is completely alone. He's freaked out, rightfully so. One rescuer said, I wouldn't go back in there for a cold thousand, bad as I need money. People were like, it's not worth it to go in. It's so So bad. So his brother was the only person to reach him on the first day. At this time, this is right when the broadcast system came out, and it's also right when... um, the media started, you know, uh, right with bro- radio broadcast, but also this is like one of the first sensationalized media stories in a way where people could have access to the story pretty quickly. And there was this reporter named William Burke Skeets Miller who was on the scene. He was really skinny. He was like 117 pounds. And he was someone who was kind of a go-getter he was kind of young he was green and he ended up going into the cave himself and moving rubble because he was so skinny so he could fit into these small caves Mm -hmm. so as a reporter he's like clearing shit out he's interviewing floyd collins while he's trapped and he's like trying he can't get nobody can get past floyd collins knee Mm -hmm. no one can find no one can have no one can move this boulder because it's on the other side and there's not an entrance through At this time, it blew up. Spectators came to the cave. There were tens of thousands of spectators there. People had food. People brought souvenirs. Souvenirs? Like, people were selling shit. It was like a tourist trap. And what's crazy is all the campsite, all the campfires up top were melting the ice and were also adjusting the swelling of the rocks while he was down there, making it more difficult to get to him. (gasps) They were trying to, like, put wood boards up, trying to make this a safe place to go through. And more people were going down there, and so they were kicking up dust and unsettling. 
finally Floyd Collins, really good friend, who was like, oh, he'll get out of it. He realized after like two days that it wasn't going well. So he went down. Floyd Collins goes, Gerald, you're the only one who can come down here. Don't let anyone else come down here. I trust you. He's going down there. He's trying to give him food. He's adventurous enough to get down there. But because of the campfires and the wood and the many people that are going through it, all of a sudden they notice the holes are getting smaller. People can't fit through. Gerald, his friend, goes there and he can't even access Floyd through the hole. He can see him, but he can't access him. Floyd is crying. Floyd is scared. He doesn't want to be alone. It's not even the food. He's already losing it because he doesn't have enough sustenance. But he's alone and he's deteriorating. Here's what I would do if I was Floyd. Mm -hmm. I would straight ask them to like make some sort of really serious morphine cocktail and pour it. And I would like open my mouth. And commit, still... I would like commit suicide by morphine. Because I would be like, I totally this, I cannot be alive in this nightmare. Totally. So it's at this too point, scary. They were trying to figure out how to get him out. And they had like National Guard shows that people are just coming out similar to the Thai cave story is how many people are trying to find it, blah, blah, blah. And so he, a fire guy is like, listen, let's get a harness and let's pull him out. If we amputate his leg, whatever. He could still maybe survive. They put a harness on his body. The reporter goes down because he's small (gasps) enough to put on it. So this reporter is like, what? Saving this guy and reporting on it. They put a harness on him. They start to pull. They don't have leverage. Floyd starts screaming. He says, stop, stop, stop. His brother hears it. His brother then has to pull, because people are heaving, hoeing away from him. His brother has to then pull the rope back and be like, stop, stop, stop. We're going to kill him. The walls are getting closed. It's not going well. They, it gets to the point where they can't reach him anymore. Four days in. The rock officially collapses in two places of the cave passage, and no rescuers can access him. No one could get in. He's crying. He's scared. They start trying to digging behind him to access it from the other way. So they start digging laterally, and it's a 55-foot shaft that intersects with the cave above him. But there's no way to reach him. He's stranded in the cave. He doesn't have food or water. He's isolated for 14 days, and on February 17th, they're able to reach him. He's dead. An autopsy will show he died about three to four days before. He had no food. He had no water. He died of thirst, hunger, and he had hypothermia. In fact, they even had... They put electric lights down there, Mm -hmm. and at one point his friend had wrapped a bulb around his neck to provide warmth and light which is how they could see him through the hole. Mm-hmm. And they think that when the last light died out is when he died. Ugh. When they found his body, they still couldn't free his leg. So they left his body there. They filled the shaft with debris and left his body there. They held a So f- they buried him that way, sort of. They held a funeral service, but his brother, they talk about his brother and his dad And, like, I can't even imagine feeling that helpless. Like, his dad pacing, praying. And his brother was like, we're getting him out of there. This is not his final resting place. Oh, wow. His brother was like, no, mm mm-mm. Didn't feel right to him. 
So two months later, they accessed the cave and they were able to dig him out. His brother dug, had dug a new tunnel in the opposite direction of the cave passage that was different than the shaft above. And so his body was retrieved on April 23rd. He was buried on his family's farm. And on the tombstone, it's engraved as the greatest cave explorer ever known. Then in 1927, listen, when I read that myself, I was like, the greatest cave explorer, that seems doubtful, but ever known, that's truthful. He died because of his own skill. Like he went so far that no one else could rescue him. Well, I think Except that's for his friend true. Gerald, and then everything collapsed around him. How true is that, him. though, of so many types of adventures, people that rock it's climb, people that do diving, like, you always want to see how far can you push yourself, and if that's the nature of what you're sort of doing with your life, you are then always sort of flirting with death and disaster, and there, you are, if your whole thing is, I want to test how far a human can push this limit, the nature of that is maybe not that far could be your answer. Totally. What's so scary too is like, this is someone who's been in the cave since he was six years old. He's been down there for 31 years. So he probably feels comfortable, but it's like the hubris that gets, I mean, it's like, there's too many unknowns. You know, he lost that light. Maybe he would have known not to kick where he kicked Had the light been on. Maybe he, uh, he talks about not being afraid and, some of the quotes from Floyd while he was down there because the reporter was able to help free him but also interview him. And he said Monday, which was the 25 hours after he got stuck, he said Monday was the first day when strangers came back to me. I kept working around whenever I felt strong enough thinking I could twist myself free. But each time I could hear pebbles falling into the deep hole right behind me. It caused me to shudder. I kept thinking what would happen if rock above me would fall. I kept trying to drive my mind to something else, but it wasn't much use. I couldn't do much to help those who came to help me, but I knew a lot of people were willing to do all their in their power. This gave me courage. I have a question. Monday. Yeah. You know my morphine suicide idea? Mm-hmm. What if it's not a suicide, but it's like... They gave him medicine for that, and it was enough. But they should enough. have unconscious medicined him. It was 1925. Oh, they didn't have that, maybe. Maybe they did, but, like... I haven't I seen the Nick. I can't right. even... Yeah, seriously. I haven't... I don't know. He also talked about not wanting to lose his leg. I don't, I don't know. Right. So that was Monday. Tuesday morning, I thought to myself, four days down here and no nearer to freedom than I was the first day. How will it end? Will I get out or... I couldn't think of it. I have faced death before. It doesn't frighten me, but it is so long. Oh, God, be merciful. I want to tell everyone outside that I love every one of them, and I'm happy because so many of them are trying to help me. Tell them I am not going to give up, that I'm going to fight and be patient and never forget them. You go out now, but don't leave me too long. I want you with me, and I'll keep helping all I can and to move some of this rock. Whoa. 1925, he was buried on the family farm. World, a greatest cave explorer ever known on his tombstone. Then in 1927, his father sold the cave and the home where the body was buried. The new owner took Floyd Collins' body and placed it in a glass coffin and put it back in Crystal Cave for years. Wait, what? They were allowed to do that? He owned the property. What's important to know. Why did he do that? Because he could probably make money from it. 
oh no, that guy's going to get so haunted. Totally. What's crazy is, is this, I mean, I'm going to jump ahead, but I'll tell you, the, this rescue attempt of Floyd Collins was the third biggest media event between both world wars. The first, Charles Lindbergh, the Lindbergh baby. In fact, Charles Lindbergh was involved in this rescue and that he was asked to fly photo negatives from the scene to a newspaper. I can't wait for you to do the third, whatever that is. I don't know what don't, the third well, is, don't, but I got to look find it up. It up. You, you got to do the trio, man. So the family, obviously, because there's all this folklore and stuff around Floyd Collins, everybody knew him. The family, obviously, was, was irate beyond the trouble they went to to get that body out. It are you gets, fucking kidding me? That guy put it back in. Gets Who worse are you in a glass coffin so people could see his remains. It's just it's the. It gets worse. Shittiest. No, it can't. That's 1927. In 1929. It's gonna. He's gonna put up one of those machines the, where you stamp a penny. <laughs> the body is stolen. <gasps> Someone steals his body. It's eventually recovered, but the left leg that was pinned is gone. What? So then they take the remains and they put it in a chained casket down in Crystal Cave. In 1961, Crystal Cave is purchased by the National Park, by Monmouth National Park. Man, Monmouth? Mammoth? Mammoth. I would guess. Is purchased by Mammoth Cave National Park. And it is closed to the public. The family requests that the body be reinterred at a cemetery. They agree. It takes 15 men to remove the casket and tombstone from the cave. And it is now interred at a cemetery. Thank God there is a body at rest. Fear and superstition obviously keeps cavers away from this cave, from Sand Cave. So it's Crystal Cave, I think, is the big one, and Sand Cave is like the, the small smaller one. area within it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true, but we're going to say that that's what it is. Seems simple. Quit playing footsie with me. I don't mean to. You're in my space. <laughs> You're right. I'm taking up more than my it's fair okay. share. It's okay. You can take your space. I don't mean to. The National Park lets a lot of these caves open. National Park has placed a steel gate to seal this part of the cave off. So you won't go fuck so around in there. you won't go fuck around and it'll look just for public safety and all that stuff. Some explorers went to the area to write the book on Floyd Collins. They were able to see that a passage could have been dug to get him out. Which I don't think is actually the most helpful piece of information because nobody knew how to get him out. No one knew how to do that. Though there's there's no he was fifty five feet below ground like coulda woulda shoulda someone could have gotten lucky and hit that pin but like they don't know what the limestone the integrity of the rock all that stuff but they didn't go when they were looking through this and they found that other passageway they didn't go past the passage because they felt it wasn't safe themselves in nineteen eighty three there was an archaeological dig and they brought back artifacts from nineteen twenty five. And what's important for you to know is there's a musical called Floyd Collins based on this event. No way. Mm-hmm. I don't think that sounds very good. I was this listening does, to it actually when I was writing it. This story does not sound ripe for a musical review. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's dramatic, certainly. Um, I was listening to some of the music. Not a huge fan. But when I was researching this, I was listening to the music. If you want more information, there's an account that is written on mental floss that I found to be really compelling and... 
had a lot of really scary bits and really emotional things about his brother and his best friend, who was his fellow explorer, and the reporter who was, like, offered so many deals. In fact, Homer, his brother, went on the vaudeville circuit to just share the story of his brother, not to make money. Nobody was making money from this, but to memorialize his brother, Mm -hmm. to share his story. Mm -hmm. The reporter got offers some other jobs. He didn't take it. He kept, you know, on his beat. It's like the story is so compelling and so scary. So fucking scary. Oh, I hate this story, but I, I was... It was when I was researching Baby Jessica and the Well, and they yeah, were like, oh, reminded me of that. Yeah, um, other. I mean, yeah, don't go into caves. Oh, I mean, claustrophobia so is so scary, and just like I can't imagine the fear. Um, I can't. I I can't fathom. I mean, the the fact that people who were experienced cavers were coming back going. Someone said, like, the last time was, like, I don't care if you tell me I can own the state of Kentucky. I'm not going back in there. That, oh. Like, that is so fucking. Wow. Wicked. Like, truly, like, stomach churning. Oh. That's the story of Floyd Collins. What a story, Gary. What a story. Yeah. Floyd Collins, rest in peace. You know, we go, uh. When we're in Hawaii, we go uh, check out the lava tubes. They're sort of like caves that go into mm-hmm. the ground that are made naturally from lava flows. Oh, cool. Um, we went to go explore a lava tube. What's interesting is some people that live on property that has lava tubes on their property will decide to, you know, pitch a little... If they have a good entrance into the tube, they'll pitch a little hut and rent you... Uh, some helmets and lights to go explore their tube and they'll charge a how big are tubes it's variable but right. very i'm i'm talking like picture uh the ones we've McDonald's gone into are, are either on national park and they're approved where they have like they've gone ahead and made like a paved road inside for oh, you to wow. walk on um, but we also went to somebody's property and did one that didn't have such a clean setup where right. we actually had to climb a ladder to go down in and then it wasn't cleaned up and excavated. So there was certain areas you'd walk Ooh. that would be um, super rocky and you're just the bigger danger is tripping. There's no super tight areas. You know, you've never experienced darkness like that. If you were to turn totally. out your light, there's nothing if you've turned the corner. Totally. And what I remember is my family went to explore one on somebody's property and, you know, give them whatever, like $5 for a helmet and light or whatever they're charging. And they don't go with you. It's not a guided. There's yeah. there's sort of just this person Have that fun. goes, good luck, you know, and you probably sign away anything that could make them liable and then you go into this tube and we went in it and I remember she had described it and said well you walk and the ceiling's kind of low and then it gets high and it's this wide open spot we go in and we're walking and walking looking for this spot she had described and we walk 20-30 minutes and we get to another ladder and we go down deeper into the cave and oh, we just God. kept going, kept going. And it was very hard to navigate because it was very rocky where we were tripping and very dark. And then we're like, 
it feels like it's just going to keep going. Are we ready to turn around? And it, it was getting kind of, I don't know, scary vibes. So we did end up turning around and we go back and we get to where we entered the cave and realize the entire time we had been going the wrong direction. Where we were supposed to go was the opposite way once we climbed down the ladder. And that was like flat ground that you could navigate. And it was very clear what that part of the cave system was. And where we were going was just uncharted territory, sort of. Oh, my God. I mean, not completely. There was a ladder in there and stuff. But it was, um, I don't know. I don't know, man. It's so unsettling. There's, um, (laughs) mine is such a lamer story, but... When I was on tour, we passed through St. Louis, and there's this place. I'm trying to think of what the museum is called. It's the coolest place in the whole wide world, also scariest, because it's basically McDonald's play place, play place but the a whole museum. There's crazy slides, there's ball pits, and it's for adults and kids. I don't know how parents let their kids just, like, rock around through it, because, like, there's places where you're, like, people are following you and you like can't turn around you have to just keep going straight and there's like steep slides like it's not that sounds really fun i'd be with kids and i'd be freaked out and the kids would just be running around and you're like ah like who's your parents aren't even around like kids how are you not lost how are you not injured like i got hurt because you're like on your knees crawling and then there's outside there's like a like the the tube that goes like outside the museum that scares me enough and it feels like I'm when I'm being chased by someone like someone's following me and the pressure and not being able to turn around like not having complete control of my surroundings Ugh, it makes me so uncomfortable and so reading this article gave me the heebie jibbies hard I get that anything that makes real life use of the phrase past the point of no return is my worst nightmare. Oh, anyway, the only, you know, pro I can say of this is that his life was memorialized in a way where people know him. He's infamous. His, you know, I mean, his story has been told since 1925. It's real folklore. It's, but it's jarring to hear. Thanks for telling it. You're welcome. Despite your fears. Yeah. Face your fears. Face the truth. Join Patreon. Uh, I mean, we always say that. Um, but truly, guys, we're we're cooking up some in- insane content over on Patreon. And if you're missing it, then what can I say? I would feel sorry for you, except that it's so easy to just go give us $5 a month. You support the podcast. You support Carrie and I. If you like us, consider doing that. Yeah. Uh, besides the free content, we just appreciate it so that yeah, we can we keep making the, uh, the episodes. Totally. So, uh, you know. You're just paying for some Adobe Premiere with us. Really? We're all in this together. We're all in this together. Your end of the bargain is $5. Our end of the bargain is research, <laughs> getting together, recording a podcast, editing, editing it, it, putting it up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would I would argue this is teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work. Uh, <laughs> You're really selling it today. I'm trying. She's feeling it, I'm y'all. I'm feeling it. She's feeling it hard. Look, if $5 is, is too restrictive, you can really uh, give us any amount and that helps. Or you can hop right on Apple because for some reason it matters, you guys. I don't understand algorithms. I don't understand almost anything that has to do with computers. No, she doesn't. (laughs) In my Google searches, I've been led to the knowledge that having uh, people that hit follow or subscribe, I think it's subscribe. Seems to be helpful. People that, and giving reviews means that we might show up more frequently in searches, which is good because if we get a lot of listeners 
um, maybe one day I too could tell you about Madison Reed. <laughs> the dream. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave you with this. I had Tumblr today. Thank <laughs> you.